let's begin at the end. Why, why are we going to conclude our service with hymn number 124, Who is He in Yonder Stall? Uh, is it because it's December? Uh, well, that was certainly hovering in the back of my mind as I, I planned the service on, on Tuesday. Um, more significantly, the words of Psalm 115 were ringing in my ears. And one of our goals in worship here at Arlington Baptist is for God's Word to, to drive our worship. Uh, we cannot worship according to our whims. We must worship according to God's Word. We must worship according to what He commands and what He commends. We should let His agenda in Scripture govern what we give our attention to in the service. It is how He has chosen to guard us from hearing what we want to hear and to put before us what we need to hear. So how do we arrive at number 124? Who is he in yonder stall? Well, Psalm 115, it begins with a proclamation of the glory of God. So God's glory should be a key theme in the service. And then three times in verses 9, 10, and 11 of Psalm 115, we, we read these words about our God. He is their help and shield. He is their help and shield. He is their help and shield. So what connection does, does that um, God's glory and the fact that God is our help and shield have to do with hymn number 124. Well, Lord willing, in the fifth, fifth verse of that song, we will sing this. Who is he that from the grave has come to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules throughout all the world alone? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. And at His feet we humbly fall. Crown Him, crown Him, Lord of all. Psalm 115 is about glorifying our Maker and not the things that we make. So let's feast on this rich psalm together. If you haven't done so already, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the hymnals, in the, in the pews, sorry, next to the hymnals, uh, you can find the psalm on page 510, 510. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying through a handful of psalms. The, the psalms, we must realize, were uh, the prayer and hymn book of the ancient people of God. These were the, the songs that they sang to one another in corporate worship. The, the prayers that they prayed beside their beds at night, the poems in which they expressed their fears and failures to God, the ballads through which they confessed their sins and expressed their confidence in God's mercy. These psalms were not just for the ancient people of God, they're also for us. These songs and poems are meant to move us and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom they point. In fact, Psalm 115 is the third in a group of psalms known as the Egyptian Hillel Psalms. Uh, psalms 113 to 118 make up the Egyptian Hillel. Egyptian Hillel Psalms would have been sung during the celebration of the Passover. Uh, the Passover was the night in which God rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. Israel sacrificed a lamb and they spread its blood over the doorposts of the home. And in doing so, they were protected from the judgment of God that was sweeping through Egypt. Psalms 113 to 118 
were sung to remember and commemorate God's saving kindness to Israel. So stop and and consider this for a moment. This morning we're reading and studying a psalm that would have been on Jesus' lips during the last week of his life. Jesus may have even sung this psalm when he celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. The night he instituted the Lord's Supper. Consider that these words were on Jesus' lips as he knowingly approached his death. Jesus sang praise to God the Father with his death days, if not hours, away. Jesus undoubtedly saw something in these psalms about how he could glorify God. If your eyes have scanned Psalm 115... You'll know that the focus of Psalm 115 is not hard to see. After an opening call and declaration of God's glory in verses 1 to 3, we're told that idols are dumb and they make you dumb. That's in verses 4 to 8. Then in verses 9 to 13, we read an exhortation to trust the Lord, for He is the help and shield of His people. And then finally, there is a return to giving God praise in verses 14 to 18. Psalm 115 then is about giving glory to our Maker not the things that are made. Let's begin with where the psalm begins. There in verses 1 to 3. We're called to give glory to God for He is steadfast and sovereign. This is point number one of the sermon. Give glory to God for He is steadfast and sovereign. Let's see if you can see this in the first three verses. Read read verse 1 there, beginning there in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. For the sake... Of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Give glory to God for he is sovereign. He is steadfast and sovereign. That's the the thrust of these first three verses here. Twice the, the, the psalmist used that phrase, not to us. This shows an emphasis. Or rather... It shows us what should be de-emphasized, right? We should not receive glory, but God should. To give glory to something or someone is to ascribe weight and worth. To give glory or to uh, to something or someone is uh, to give someone our attention and affection. To give them uh, submission and service. To bind ourselves to them in duty and delight. To give something or someone glory is to show them reverence and renown. The psalmist tells us that all of this should go to God and not to us. Because we tend to be glory thieves, but God alone is to be glorified. And the psalmist, he tells us why. Why should God receive glory? God should receive glory for two reasons there. First, God is steadfast. You see that in the text of of verse 1, don't you? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for... The sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We are not the ones who are steadfast in love. God is. We are often faithless. But He remains ever faithful. These two phrases, steadfast love and faithfulness, they expound upon and explain one another. God is faithful because His love never fails. And His love never fails because He, in His very person, is faithful. He can never fail. Beloved Behold your God and give Him glory. We stray, but He pursues. We turn away, but He turns us back. Our love flickers, 
like a flame in the wind, but his love roars like a fire. Our love is half-hearted, but his love is whole-hearted. His love is steadfast. Give glory to him for his steadfast, ardent, relentless, stubborn, unwavering, undying, constant, dependable, enduring, never failing and unfaltering love. Give glory to God because this is the kind of love that he loves you with even though you don't love him with that kind of love. You know that you don't deserve his steadfast love. But because of his grace, you have it. And if you are his child, you will never lose it. Give glory to God for his faithfulness. When the Bible speaks about God's faithfulness, it often speaks in terms of his keeping covenant with his people. He he keeps his promises to them. He kept his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. He kept his promise to Moses to raise up a prophet like him. He kept his promise to David to raise up a king from his line. He has kept his promise to never flood the earth with water again. He is keeping his promise never to leave or forsake his people. Whatever he speaks, he's faithful to fulfill. We often fail to keep our promises, but he never fails to keep his. All his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 33 verse 4. All possible glory, honor, confidence, and love are due to our God for His steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the reason, one reason at least, that we should give God glory. Another reason we should give God glory is because He is sovereign. We should give God glory because He is sovereign. You see that there in verse 3? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. This is nothing less than a a declaration of God's total sovereignty and freedom. Now we're going to unpack this in a minute, but verse 2 stands in the way of verse 3. The nations have challenged Israel with the question, where is your God? It's the kind of question that frankly to this day deserves an answer. In the ancient Near East, uh, national deities were able to be located. They, They were idols, they had temples. But Israel was different than the nations. The, the second commandment prohibited the people of Israel from making graven images or, or anything, uh, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The people of Israel were prohibited from bowing down to them and serving them. The Egyptians, Canaanites, Assyrians, Philistines, and Babylonians all had idols, but Israel had none. So they asked Israel, where is your God? Now this would have been a particularly painful question if Israel had just experienced a defeat of some kind, right? In fact, in that situation, that question would have been a taunt. So imagine, for example, the people of Israel hearing these words uttered by the nation of Babylon after they were taken into captivity. Imagine the people of of Babylon saying to God's people, where is your God now, now that you're in captivity? Where, Where is he? That's... The question the nations asked Israel, where is your God? But that is not not the question verse 2 is asking, is it? Verse 2 is actually coming from the lips of a faithful Israelite who is asking, why should the nations say this? Verse 2 is asking, Yahweh, why should you be assailed and ridiculed like this? In other words, the the psalmist is asking Yahweh to, to vindicate his own name. To make his glory known through the humiliation of the nations who who mock and taunt God and his people. And in the meantime, while God's people wait 
for God to make His steadfast love and faithfulness known, verse 3 provides the answer to the questions of the mocking nations. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. This is still the answer of the people of God today. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The church's state of humiliation will be turned to exaltation when Christ our Lord comes again. The phrase, our God is in the heavens, tells us not merely of God's location, but of His sovereignty. Here we're we're getting human language to describe, as best a human can, a divine reality. God is totally sovereign. So He reigns from such inestimable heights, such indescribable heights, such infinite height that the psalmist grabs the highest reality that a human can set his mind on and comprehends to declare that Yahweh reigns above all of His creatures and over all of creation. This was a particularly good reply to the nations because their gods, their idols, were only local deities. They only ruled over the hills and the valleys or only a small geographic area. But here, when the people of God declare, our God is in the heavens, they are saying that Yahweh sovereignly rules over all, even the territory that your God thinks He rules over. You see, Yahweh sovereignly rules over all, and He is so great that He cannot be contained. You see, our God is a God who cannot be contained in a tiny little idol. That you can stick in a little temple, huddled in your little corner of the world. Our God is bigger than your God. And here's a reason that it's inappropriate to make images of God. It portrays a reduced, diminished glory when He resides above and rules over all the heavens that declare His glory. That's why Israel was prevented from making idols. Even a calf. Our God is a big God, and He should not be made small, but be made great. Added to this idea of God's supreme sovereignty over all creation is also God's total freedom. Yahweh does all that He pleases. The nations may think that Yahweh has suffered a defeat through Israel's poor situation and suffering, but even in situations like this, God has His purposes. Yahweh may may yet have a purpose, in allowing His people to suffer an apparently calamitous defeat. God causes all things to fall out according to His sovereign will. Just turn your minds back to Joseph for a minute. His brothers sold him into slavery. But it was that sinful action that led to God's sovereign preservation of many people. So Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, would say, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Salvation from starvation had to come through slavery. God does all that He pleases. Think about the Exodus again. What happened before the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea? And Israel walked away free. Well... The people of Israel had their backs to a river. They were cornered, surrounded by the gruesome and intimidating army of Egypt. There appeared to be no way of escape. Yes, God may lead His people into a desperate situation of suffering to ultimately set them free. 
God does all he pleases. He may even allow or bring defeat in order to accomplish a greater victory. We need only think of the cross of Christ, his burial in the grave. Death had to overtake our Savior in order for him to conquer the grave. God's ways are mysterious. He does all that he pleases. And all that he pleases brings him glory and his people good. That Yahweh is completely free shows that he is completely different from the gods of the nations. The nations believed that they could manipulate their gods into doing what they wanted. They just needed to offer the right sacrifices at the right place at the right time. And the God would do the right thing. They would deliver what their worshippers demanded. But our God is in the heavens. And he does as he pleases, the psalmist tells us. We cannot make Yahweh do what we want. He is not a heavenly vending machine. He has a will, and he will accomplish it. We cannot bend his wills to ours. We must bend our wills to his. So Christian, ask yourself, is your will bent to his? Conformed to his? Do you welcome all of his providences? Do you welcome both the difficult and the delightful? This is freeing, I think, because our wills are marred and filled with mixed motives. But Yahweh's will is perfectly good. God's will is perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And all that He pleases is perfectly right and righteous. All that He does is perfectly good for us. He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Romans 8, 28. Our God is in the heavens. We should give Him glory, for He is steadfast and sovereign. But we should also be on guard. Not only are we prone to be glory thieves, but we are also prone to give glory to others. We should be on guard against the idols of the world. The truth is, is that they are dumb, and they make you dumb. This is our second point. That plainly, idols are dumb, and they make you dumb. And I mean this both in the newer and older senses of the word, dumb. By dumb, in the old sense, uh, I mean lacking the power of speech. Uh, by dumb, in the new sense, I mean the restraint of good sense, intelligence, reason, and the pursuit of righteousness. If you don't believe me that Psalm 115 makes the point that idols are dumb and they make you dumb, then just read the text. Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, idols are dumb. They lack the power of speech. Verse 5, they have mouths, but do not speak. And idols make you dumb. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It's right there in the text. Idols are dumb, and they make you dumb. Now, we, we almost have to slow down and read deliberately to fully appreciate what the psalmist is saying here. There's a rhythm to verses 5, 6, and 7. 
In, in those verses, we're given a, a, a body part of an idol, and then we're, we're told that it doesn't work. But this only makes complete sense given what we read there in verse 4. Do you see verse 4? Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. See, silver and gold are not living properties. And molding them and shaping them uh, doesn't bring life to them. What is more, these idols are made by human hands. Why on earth would someone worship something that they make with their own hands? That is dumb. The workmen made these idols. Why would they pray to them? It's silly to expect salvation from silver. Man cannot impart divinity in fashioning an idol. And the fact that the idols are made with something that is expensive doesn't improve their condition. Idols are useless things. And since they've been made with high quality materials, they're just fancy useless things. The nations may ask, where is your God? But Israel asks, tell me again, where did you get your God? Oh, from your imagination and from your hands. Right. You see, actually, the taunt is returned with a taunt from Israel here. Now, the reply to this argument is to say, well, that idol's just, it's just representative, right, of a, a god. Well, exactly, that still makes the point. That god is so powerless that he cannot even fashion something himself, right? Yahweh made the whole world and humans, all humans in it. So this portion of Psalm 115 reminds us of Isaiah chapter 44, particularly there in verses 9 to 20, where Isaiah depicts the idol maker busy at his work. And then suddenly, the idol maker, he gets hungry. And so what does he do? Well, he's been working with one half of a log to make his idol, and then he just chops off the other half of the log, and he makes a fire to cook his dinner on. And so Isaiah, he, he steps back and he says, Are you telling me, are you, are you telling me that this block of wood that you worship is holy? It's actually good for nothing unless, unless you need to make a fire for dinner. See there in verses 5, 6, and 7, the psalmist walks through the features of these gods that are, are made by human hands. And interestingly enough, isn't it? They're made in the image of humans, right? They have mouths. They have eyes. They have ears, noses, hands, feet. But they can't use any of those things. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He's saying a man has made these idols, these gods in his own image, a real god. The one true and living God makes man in his image. While Yahweh is a spirit, while he does not possess a body like men, we do learn from the scriptures that God can do all the things that these idols cannot do. Idols cannot give a word of direction or counsel. But what do we have? We have words from our God. These idols cannot give a word of direction or counsel. They cannot give commands or enter into a covenant. They, they cannot speak, but Yahweh does speak. He spoke the world into existence. Genesis chapter 1. He spoke to His people from Mount Sinai. Exodus 19. Idols cannot see, but our God does see. Hagar teaches us that in Genesis chapter 16. Idols cannot hear. They cannot hear the prayers of their worshipers. So how futile it is to pray to them. But God, He does hear. 
He heard the cries of his people in Egypt and rescued them. Exodus 2. Idols cannot smell. They, they cannot take in the worship of humans. Yahweh, though, is different. The, the offerings at the tabernacle and temple were often described as a pleasing aroma to God. Leviticus chapter 8. Idols, though they do have a hand, they cannot give you a hand. Yahweh can help, though. In Proverbs chapter 21, we're told that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He will turn it wherever he will. See, God, he, he works in the world, but idols just sit still. Yes, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. And yet, he is able to relate and interact with his creatures and creation. Idols cannot. When the psalmist says that they do not make a sound in their throat, you see that there? The idea is that they have no sound of, of breath in them. Um, in, in other words, there's, there's no sign of life in them. Um, so one commentator, Michael Wilcock, he, he said it well when he wrote this of, of idols. You never feel a loving touch from their hand or sense their footstep alongside yours. They can make a lot of noise, though. No, not even that. Their devotees do, but no sound comes from the God himself, for he does not exist. I mean, just think about it. How silly is it even to make an idol with feet when he cannot walk? You've got to pick this thing up and move it around for him. The folly of worshiping these idols should be obvious and self-evident. Right? Verse 8 is an important reminder and it's also a sobering warning. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. First, verse 8, it reminds us that we were made to image something, or better yet, someone. God made us in His image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. He made us to reflect His glorious character and good rule over the creation. Imaging, you see, is deep in the human person. We inevitably do it. So for, for good or for ill, there are ways in which each one of us have imitated each other. Uh, for good or for ill, there are ways in which we have imitated those who, who raised us up. For good or for ill, there are ways in which my children imitate me. For good or for ill, we, we imitate those who have discipled us. Imitation and imaging happens. We will inevitably image something or someone, and it will be who we worship. Here is how one believer put it. What we revere, we resemble. What we revere, we resemble. And then he said this, for ruin or for restoration. What we revere, we resemble for ruin or restoration. And the question is, will we revere the living God? Or will we revere lifeless idols? The idols are lifeless and so those who make them and worship them and trust them will be spiritually lifeless. That's the sober warning of verse 8. And, and we can think of idols in, in two different ways. We can think of idols in kind of an, an ancient and traditional sense. There are actual idols, figures in people's homes and temples and cathedrals. It, these are actually still around today. Ask yourself, what are those idols capable of? The answer is nothing. They have no functionality, ability, 
or vitality. And the same is true for idols that are, are more amorphous and conceptual, like a career, or money, or power, or reputation, or comfort, or people, or food. Now, you may wonder how these things might be idol, idols in our lives. And the answer is that we take these good gifts and we turn them into gods. We let them rule our lives. We fall down before them in that they, sh- they shape our schedules. Right? We, we order our lives around them. And they rule our lives. Rather than Yahweh's priorities. Uh, they, they absorb our attention. Our minds turn to them often. They, they consume our cares. Our, our hearts race and we're, we're anxious about them. They, uh, they, they feed our fears. We, we fear losing them or fear that they'll be harmed in some way, shape, or form. They, they sap all of our strength. Our, our energy is consumed by them. Uh, they take our money. We invest in them. Pay resources to them. An idol is anything that calls us away from obedience to our maker, to something that has been made or something that we are making. So, is your education an idol? Is your career an idol? Is your family an idol? Is financial security an idol? Is someone else, another person, an idol? Idols cannot deliver. They can only demand. Idols cannot deliver. They can only demand. And reflect for a moment, when you've turned yourself over to an idol, what, had it, what has it done for you or what has it done to you? Are you any safer or sanctified or secure? I mean, maybe you've made education an idol. If so, there's a, a danger of growing conceited, or proud, or arrogant, or condescending, because there is a, a knowledge there. So we become blind to our need for humility. Maybe money has been an idol. There's a, a danger then of growing greedy, oppressive, and selfish, of hoarding. What if fame and, and popularity, the, uh, the approval of others is an idol? Well, there's a danger of becoming vain, aggressive, bombastic, demeaning. Well, what if, what if family's an idol? There's a danger of not sharing yourself or sharing your family with others. Well, what, what, if, what if work is an idol? And I think that this is perhaps a, a particularly uh, profound idol for the D.C. area. I wonder if you find yourself overwhelmed by work, what, what has that done to your spiritual life? If some task or object eats up the whole of your attention or your time, what is your spiritual state like? When or if you become so busy that you have no time for the Lord, and so you give Him no time, are you stronger or weaker in Christ? If you've allowed your work to absorb all of your mental space, Are you able to speak about God? Use your hands to serve God. Are you able to hear God in His Word? Are you able to use your feet in the service of God? Um, You see, an amorphous idol, like a career, can leave you spiritually deaf and dumb. It can leave you just like the idol itself, static and stuck. An idol uses you... And it leaves you useless. 
So when we worship idols, we become like the idols. When we worship idols, we cannot speak righteous words because we haven't been filled with God's righteous words. When we worship idols, we cannot see righteousness and unrighteousness with clarity because we're not receiving God's perspective from His Word. When we worship idols, we cannot hear, and we especially cannot hear righteous words calling us to repent or change. When we worship idols, we cannot lend a helping hand because we're so absorbed with ourselves and what our hands are doing or what we, what we want them to be doing. When we worship those things that are dead and dumb, we become spiritually dead and dumb. Is that us in some ways? Does that describe our experience? Do we ever feel maybe somewhat spiritually dead inside or dull? What have we been worshiping? God is living. So worship God and you will be alive. It is only natural that this is where the psalm turns. This is our third point. Trust in the Lord. It's that simple. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in idols. Trust in the Lord. We hear this exhortation multiple times in verses 9 to 13. So follow along as I read Psalm 115, verses 9 to 13. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Here we've reached the center of the psalm. The central admonition or imperative of the psalm. If dead idols are not to be trusted, then who should God's people trust? None other than the living God. He says it three times. In order to make sure that the people of God do not miss it. It's as if he's like verbally pounding the table. There's an old legal saying. I don't know where it, it comes from. Maybe some of our attorney brothers and sisters in Christ might know it. Uh, but it goes something like this. If the facts are against you, argue the law. If the law is against you, argue the facts. If the law and the facts are against you, pound the table and yell. Well, the facts and the law are actually with the psalmist. And he's still yelling. Uh, three times he's yelling, trust the Lord. The facts are that the idols are dead and Yahweh is alive. The law declares that Israel should not worship graven images. And he is still yelling, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Why do you think the psalmist needs to say this over and over and over again? Maybe it's because we need to hear it over and over and over again. We are tempted over and over again. We're discouraged over and over again. And we need to be encouraged to trust God over and over again. We don't always learn the lesson the first time. I think about what this exhortation calls us to, to trust the Lord. We're not simply to understand, but to trust Him. Not simply to know, but to lean on Him. To live in light of what we believe and understand. And as we do, recognize we will become like what we trust. What we were made for, to reflect our God. Do you want to become holy, righteous, and good? Then trust the one who is holy 
righteous, and good. Remember who we revere, we will resemble to our restoration or to our ruin. Do you want your soul restored? Do you want your soul restored? Then revere God. Revere God. Trust Him. Fear Him. Live in awe before Him. How? Well, by His Word. God, He calls His people away from worshiping images and He calls them into the worship, into worship through His Word. And why would that be? Here's how one believer answered that question. God calls His people away from worshiping images and He calls them into worship through His Word because images provoke sensuality, whereas words provoke spirituality. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ, Romans 10.17. There's a a fascinating movement in this exhortation to trust. I wonder if you noticed it. We move from Israel, there in verse 9 you see, and in verse 10, who is it? It's the house of Aaron. Verse 11, to those who fear the Lord. So we're moving from the nation as a whole, to the priests, to individual Israelites. Everyone from, from top to bottom was to fear the Lord. And that movement, it repeats itself there in verses 12 and 13, with the concluding phrase, He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. All are called to trust. And all who trust will receive blessing from the Lord. It doesn't matter if you are rich or if you're poor, if you're young or if you're old, if you're male or female. All who trust will be blessed. Why? Well, because God is their help and shield. God is Israel's help in time of trouble. He is their shield in time of battle. He is their sole source of salvation in every scene and season. When we're told in verse 12 that the Lord has remembered us, did you notice that little change there? The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. We're being told that God has lovingly looked on His people and acted on their behalf. This appears to be something of a a turning point, much like there was a turning point in the past in Israel's history. This language, I think, it looks back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, when God's people were languishing under Pharaoh's rule in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we we hear these words. And God heard the groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. See, God's remembrance is often tied to His loving action. The psalmist assures the people of God that Yahweh will remember and act For the good of his people. Well, what does this mean for us? Just as the ancient people of God were to keep themselves from idols, so the New Testament people of God are to keep themselves from idols. After all, that's how the Apostle John ended his first letter with these words Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So we we keep ourselves from idols and we trust our God. Now, here is the counterintuitive reality of Psalm 115 and the fulfillment of the right worship of God according to the Christian scriptures. Our trust in God finds its apex, its telos, its fulfillment, its goal in an image. Our trust in God finds its telos and goal in an image. Jesus, Paul tells us, is the image of the invisible God. The one who did have a mouth. 
who did have eyes, who did have hands and ears. You see, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, though our God was in the heavens, he came to earth. In the words of Frank Houghton's wonderful Christmas carol, Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. See, unlike the ancient images and idols, Jesus had a mouth and he spoke words of grace and truth. He had eyes and he had compassion on the people who were wandering as sheep without a shepherd. He had ears and he heard about our sin and our need for salvation. He had hands and he used them to heal. He had feet and he took the good news of his kingdom from town to town. He had the breath of life in his throat and body. And the New Testament scriptures teach us that he is God in the flesh and that we are to trust in him. We are told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that those who trust in Jesus will be conformed to the image of Jesus. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the good news that you need to hear. Turn from idols and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Turn from living your own way. Turn to Christ, and you will pass from death to life. Jesus lived a life of perfect worship, honor, and glory to God the Father. He lived a sinless life, the life that you and I have not lived. And yet he died on the cross to rescue sinners like us from the punishment of sin and death. And three days after his death, he was raised from the dead, proving to us that he is is living. And that all who worship him, all who are united to him, are alive with him. All those who trust the Lord will praise the Lord. So trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this admonition from God's word this morning. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who trust the Lord will praise the Lord. Here's the the fourth and final point. Praise and bless the Lord who has blessed you. Or shorter, bless the Lord who has blessed you. This is what we find in Psalm 115, verses 14 to 18. Read those verses now. May the Lord God, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Verses 14 and 15, they reveal that this psalm was was actually probably sung antiphonally. So one part of the congregation would sing a portion of the psalm, and the other part of the congregation would sing another portion of the psalm. 
So one group saying certain lines and another group saying the other lines. So the one group probably saying verses 14 and 15. And they're kind of a, um, a wish prayer of blessing upon God's people. And this would have uh, been a particularly encouraging portion to, to hear sung over the people of God in exile. Remember in, in exile the numbers of the people of God were, were greatly diminished. So the thought of, of God's people multiplying was wonderfully encouraging. A, a reversal of fortunes. And, and the prophet of uh, Isaiah offers similarly uh, encouraging words in Isaiah chapter 54 verses 1 to 3. After that great suffering servant song where we see Jesus Christ afflicted, we're told that growth will come from and through his death. So hear these words from Isaiah 54 verses 1 to 3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. See, there was a coming a day when the people of God would not be so small, but they would grow and they would populate the nations, Isaiah said. Psalm 115 verse 14 finds its fulfillment in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over these last 2,000 years, God has continued to bring about the new births of millions of believers in Jesus Christ. He has increased the children of God's people. And God's people continue to bring about birth, spiritual children, through the Great Commission. It's going through making disciples of, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. The prayer of Psalm 115, verse 14, has been answered. And so has verse 15. As we read about earlier in the service, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we have been blessed. Paul says, in Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been blessed. So what ought we to do? We ought to bless and praise our God. So Paul goes on, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. We ought to praise, bless our God. This is why we bless Him. This is why we praise His name, because He has blessed us in Christ We love and bless because He first loved and blessed us. And notice how the psalm identifies God in verse 15. You notice what we see there about God? He is the one who made heaven and earth. Here is the maker. Here is the maker blessing those whom He has made. Those who have been made ought to bless their maker. Not what they have made with their hands. This is yet another subtle polemic against those who trust in idol. Those, though our God is in the heavens, He has entrusted and called those made in His image to exercise dominion over the earth. That's verse 16. He's entrusted and called those made in His image to exercise dominion over the earth. This harkens back to the mandate given in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 30. That does not mean that mankind is in complete and unfettered control of what happens on the earth, 
But it does mean that we have real, meaningful, and significant impact on our world. We are to rule and order the portion of the earth that the Lord has entrusted to us in such a way that we reflect and resemble God's rule over the world. How then should we understand verse 17? Simply, that the living give praise to God. The living give praise to God. If you are doubly alive, if you are both physically alive and spiritually alive, then it is your privilege to bless the Lord as long as He gives you life and breath. Verse 18. Remember, you live not to your glory, not to your glory, but to the glory of God. All life should be lived to the praise, glory, and honor of our great and gracious God. This is how we ought to live, even if we're taunted by the world around us. When the world taunts us with, where is your God in your cancer? Where is your God in your arthritis? Where is your God in the sickness of your child? Where is your God in the loss of your husband's memory? Where is your God in the loss of your job? Where is your God in your debilitating headaches? Where is your God in your burdens? When the world taunts with these questions, and these are not easy questions, the Lord has given us an answer in His Word. We can answer with Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Though we do not always understand or see all of His purposes, we trust Him. For He is our help and shield. Jesus came to heal, and to help, and to save. And we will give Him glory, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And we will not, He will not forsake His people, for He is faithful. Those who are brought low by the calamities and the sufferings of life, In this world, those who are brought low to the earth, He will one day lift up to heaven. And so to His name we will give glory. Let's pray together.